Hi, this is Anne Philippi, founder of the New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi and welcome to a new episode of the show. My guest today is J.R. Rahn, the founder and co-CEO of MindMed, a company that discovers, develops and deploys psychedelic-inspired medicines and experiential therapies through FDA clinical trials. J.R. and I talk about the current status of mental health in the U.S. and the world, which seems to have never been near as bad as now. 11% of Americans seriously considered suicide in June, Ran observed in an article recently, a doubling since last year. We are not okay, says JR, and this has been the case for a while, which turned JR into a passionate founder to help research LSD and MDMA in a new way and turn them into modern mind medicine. We also address JR's personal history with trauma, We discuss the Ritalin and the Xanax generation and why they are often the ones ending up taking antidepressants later in life. So please enjoy the show and JR, who I love to talk to since he's open with his own story, but at the same time pushing the psychedelic movement forward as a passionate entrepreneur. We are very excited, or I'm very excited to have JR Ran from MindMed, the CEO from MindMed, on the new Health Club show today. And we tried to create like a little Joe Rogan situation today in a new studio, <laughs> just, just for you, of Got course. Yeah. And um, so you are in Miami right now? I am, yeah. I uh, flew here after the um, COVID launched and I'm too paranoid <laughs> to get on an airplane. So I've stayed here. Which is, we're happy to use, you're so responsible. I, I haven't been on the airplane too since February. So, but like you have been on the podcast already a while ago. But like I said, it seems that in MindMed, in the MindMed land, a lot of things are happening every day. And uh, this morning when I went online, I saw this piece in a New Yorker about you. So maybe you want to quickly tell us what has happened in the last couple of days. What amazing things are happening? Um, well, I was in the New Yorker, which is a bucket list uh, life achievement. I think my mother would have been very proud. And, and it was a very cool thing to see that our society is starting to accept our field and, and our industry in a different light. And I think that um, the more we can become part of a narrative and a conversation around mental health, I think is um, really going to be beneficial uh, to, to what we're working on. And I think the New Yorker did a really sort of good job of outlining, you know, what that mission is and, mm -hmm. and why we're doing it. But what it was really announcing was that we are forming a partnership with NYU Langone Medical Center, which has been an early pioneer of psychedelic medicine research for, for a number of years and is really sort of the epicenter of research in New York City and, and the U.S., besides Johns Hopkins, of course. And so we've... As a team, my co-founder, Stephen Hurst, has been working with NYU since, I believe, 2009, at least the Department of Psychiatry. And we just wanted to set up a program where we could ultimately figure out a way that we're going to deploy all these medicines, both non-hallucinogenic medicines that are based on psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapies. Because um, I think there's a lot of talk around clinical trials. There's less talk around how do we build the infrastructure 
and the training programs to really figure out the community that's going to help deliver these medicines in the future, because that is the rate limiting factor is humans to, to mm -hmm. making this whole space work. Well, I mean, I thought it was uh, very frankly spoken, which I liked a lot is when you said in the article, um, 11% of Americans seriously considered suicide in June. And then, which means like the number has doubled since last year. So, I mean, of course, we in Europe here, we just, um, it's not that we have our own shit going on, but I think it's super tough to live in America right now, I feel, because I live there by myself, but I cannot imagine being there at the moment. So, I mean, what I'm always wondering if I talk to my friends and everything, how would you describe the feeling living there at the moment? Surreal. Surrealism is, is having a big re uh, return right now. Um, 40% of Americans either had some form of mental illness or a substance abuse issue in the midst of COVID. That's not, you know, a small number, right? That's no. a lot, a lot of people. And look, I don't want to say that this is exclusively an American problem. Europe has no, no. own problems, <laughs> you know, like that's not, and, and so does Asia and, and so does Africa. But I think from a mental health perspective, Europe and, and the United States, unfortunately, mental health and addiction might be our next great growth story. And that's really sad. Right. That's true. I mean, here it's the same thing. And I mean, I feel that I meet every week. I feel somebody who tells me that they secretly microdose or that they know somebody who secretly microdoses. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this has not been the case, let's say a year ago. So, but I mean, I just quickly want to come back to your, uh, before we get into the, the bigger picture, but I find interesting that you early on started to talk about your, your kind of personal stories, how you got into this and how you were affected by it. And I, I still feel today that a lot of founders in this field, including myself, have come through this field or into the psychedelic field because they have personal experiences, topics that they had to deal with. And But what I didn't know, and that what you also said in the, the piece in The New Yorker that everybody should read, obviously, is that you found your mother when you were eight years old dead and that this introduced or like it created such a traumatic experience in you that uh, you would not actually really be aware of for all these years and then it suddenly turned into a yeah like a really big problem for you later on in life not less actually maybe around the time when these things happening so I would love if you could talk about this a little bit yeah so I was on a family vacation in the Dominican Republic with my mom, my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. We had a really big sort of villa down there. Um, and one night uh, we got, it was actually, it was the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, oh. I think it was 1995. The day, the night before Thanksgiving, we all had this great dinner and we all went home and my mom was you know, she was driving one golf cart and my uncle was driving the other and I wanted to go with my cousins. And she was saying, no, no, come with me, come sit next to me. And I ended up going with my cousins and I, I drove, that was the last time I saw my mother alive actually was driving that golf cart and her saying, no, come sit next to me. Um, you know, shortly thereafter, I, I walked into her sort of bedroom and my, my sister was uh, crawling on, on her. 
and she was she was dead. Uh, my sister was alive, and it was sort of the, my one-year-old sister. And it was this image that was forever in my mind, and still is in my mind, um, of see, sort of seeing you know both life and death that sort of intermingling in many ways. Mm-hmm. With her eyes rolled rolled back, and it was always something that I knew was traumatic. Like I like seeing that as an eight-year-old. I think you eventually get over the fact because over years, you know, you're like, oh yeah, she died. It was always sort of instilled in my, in my mind. But what psychedelics, I believe, helped me realize was I never truly dealt with her death. I dealt with the trauma of it, but I didn't deal with the guilt of it. The guilt of never getting on that golf cart. And that came to me in an experience. And I think that that really haunted me for many years, but I just never dealt with it. And um, I also dealt with this guilt for, for many, many years of, yeah, not, not helping her being eight years old and not knowing CPR, not knowing what to do. It was tough. And uh, I think psychedelics put that in perspective and allowed me to, to move forward. I mean, I, I can't say that, you know, I'll ever be healed from that experience. Mm-hmm. I, I generally don't think you, can say that mm-hmm. anything will help with that. But it allowed me to move on and realize that I have a beautiful daughter and probably doing a bunch of cocaine, Xanax, and drinking a bottle of wine or uh, you know, a, a bunch of whiskey every week was, was probably not good for my health, number one, but probably was a quick way to the grave. And if I wanted to see my daughter and smile with her and enjoy her, I needed to change my life. And I didn't need to live with the guilt of every night not not mm-hmm. being there. So, yeah, I think I think psychedelics for me created this momentum in my life. I can't say that it was the end all be all panacea that changed everything because I think there's still a lot of strong. You still need to be have the willpower to actually want to make a change, mm-hmm. but it, it definitely catalyzed um, the ability to get there. And so, I mean, that's why I'm here, right? Like that's mm-hmm. why. I, I want these medicines to be available to people that actually need them um, and that, that deserve them. Because look, I come from a, a good family in the United States. I you know, was making it in Silicon Valley, um, but there's a lot of folks that don't have the resources that I have and don't even mental health in general is, is stigmatized in the United States. Never mind psychedelic assisted therapy. Like let's just talk about regular mental health um, in some communities, like it's shunned upon. Mm. And so I don't know, I just kind of got to the point where I was like, I'm sick and tired of seeing mental illness affect people and we're not doing anything about it. And the system really isn't set up to actually help people. It's set up to put everybody on a pill a day for the rest of their lives. I don't think anyone that shows up to work, like, you know, think that's, thinks that's a good idea. Like, I, I think people genuinely are good and humankind should want to help others and and so that's what we're doing okay so and i mean you have set up a network of scientists working with you on possible outcomes of psychedelic drugs like in switzerland it's matthias lichty in maastricht it's kim kuipers and now the, the new york section you could say so i mean it seems like you have like a kind of a fast pace with this and some people say yeah but it should be also always going rather slow to not 
jinx anything and to don't harm the psychedelic movement in a way that it happened in the 60s. So what is your take on the speed, how fast you should push studies and get results? Because as you say, at the same time, more and more people are actually in need of this. Well, with knowledge, there is power. And I think the more uh, scientists that we can get involved, the more researchers, the more therapists, the more clinicians that have experience in administering these medicines, you know, ultimately is going to make a stronger company. It's going to make it a stronger industry. And so we focus on people that have the most experience. And that's why we've gone after the people that we've gone after to bring them into our network. But I'll touch on your point of, you know, are you going too fast? Well, look, I come from Silicon Valley and the reality is that we, we do like to move fast and the status quo doesn't necessarily always interest us. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. But I think when 11% of Americans want to kill themselves and 40% of the people have a mental health issue or, or a substance abuse problem, I don't really care. And I genuinely want to get medicine to people that helps them and lets them live a better life. And I don't think there's anyone in America or anyone in Europe or anyone in the world that's going to tell me that that's a bad idea. Yeah. Now, the fact that there are, there's a stigma that you know, we're using LSD or we're using psilocybin or MDMA. Sure, that's great. Let's uh, acknowledge the fact that the 1960s happened. Yes, there was a bunch of bad news articles. There's a bunch of bad news articles right now. It's called fake news. And uh, they're not about psychedelics. It's just about normal society. So let's just acknowledge that the 1960s happened and let's focus on what can actually help people. And I don't mind moving fast to do that because there's a demand and there's a need. As an entrepreneur, we, we're, we solve problems, and this is a really big problem. I think there's probably that sort of reticence, I think, from some, some folks in like sort of the nonprofit community and sort of the overall community who just a little bit scared to move forward because they've been sort of locked in a closet with no light for the last 50 years, and they're like, whoa, there's a beacon of light over there. I don't, my eyes can't handle that. And that's understandable. But let's also keep in mind that a lot of people have to work really hard to get to where we are. I mean, MAPS has been at this for 34 years. They've been trying to make MA into a medicine. I mean, that's a long time. Rick is a very patient, hardworking guy to get us to where we are. Mm -hmm. But I think at this point, we need to acknowledge that there's a big problem. And how do you do, deal with big problems? I think is ultimately... You got to find the systems and, and build companies that can deploy them to the people that need, need it the most. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the question is, is, is it even possible today to kind of not have a mental health problem? <laughs> Because related to Corona, to digital realities. So it's such a new kind of life that we got into in the last couple of maybe 10 years. I mean, there, there are all these articles like how the human brain is not actually equipped anymore for all the challenges that it has to encounter. There's almost like a Xanax generation or like a Ritalin generation where people are so used to self-medication that they even re don't realize that they would have a mental health problem without the self-medication. So that that's what I find very interesting, that if people are coming against psychedelics, that they would say, yeah, we don't know what's happening in your brain when you do psychedelics. We also don't know what's happening in the brain when you do antidepressants. They're also highly addictive. I think uh, as we look at this generation Adderall or generation uh, Xanax, we don't necessarily know 
you know, how those are affecting people. But what we do know is that mental illness is interrelated. And unfortunately, we don't really treat them as interrelated illnesses. So if you look at people, I believe that have ADHD, 50% also have anxiety. That is like insane, right? Like the correlation there. I think what's interesting about psychedelic medicine is that it's really approaching it at not just as an acute, like how do we mute this issue? It's really looking at, okay, what's the underlying cause of all this? Mm-hmm. You still need to deal with the acute problems probably in other ways. And that's why as a company, we're looking at a broad spectrum of medicines, not just one single trial using, for example, psilocybin. We are looking at, okay, let's see if we can use LSD for anxiety, but let's also understand, is there some non-hallucinogenic compound that could also be helpful in treating anxiety in combination with that? Not necessarily in combination, but let's have the broadest pipeline in the industry as possible. Mm -hmm and partner those programs in a cash efficient way to actually get them to patients. And I think the more we look at this space, the more untapped value we're going to see. And, you know, just there really hasn't been large companies going and looking at the, what can be created out of psychedelics. It's not just the experience. And that is our opinion. Experience is very, very, very powerful. And I am a direct beneficiary of that experience. But what concerns me is that we're not also looking at, does microdosing also work, right? Like there's been very little research into that. And so the company, we're we're putting dollars into making that research a reality. Well, I mean, the word microdosing, I think, is now out there. I mean, I feel that most people uh, have heard about it. I mean, this is, of course, my favorite study. (laughs) Your favorite study? Yeah. (laughs) The Project Lucy. That you do. Uh, no, Project Lucy is our experiential therapy. I still need to figure out a name for our microdosing study, but we're actually, we've been calling 18MC Project Layla. So I think we're just going to keep rolling with that. Okay. But the, the microdosing study is done by Kim Kuipers, right? In, in Maastricht. That's right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and, and it's specifically done for adults with ADHD. So mm-hmm. meaning that these adults um, have never thought about that they might be suffering from this. And to be honest, I mean, I think I first really heard about the specific adult ADHD in a, a talk from Gabor Mate because he mm-hmm. also discovered himself suffering from this when he was like 55. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that study because I think this specific study is very interesting for maybe also young adults or people, maybe even their midlife crisis, because that's another, I feel recently, another time when people just really start to have to look into their mental health issues if they have some, especially then. Yeah. So, I mean, I think adult ADHD is a thing. There's I think it onsets at different times for different people. I've had ADHD since I was a kid. I mean, I've been rambling and wandering around since I was probably, you know, a year old. So, um, and I've been on every ADHD medicine you can think of. Look, I I would love to not, uh, you know, have stimulants be the de facto treatment method for ADHD. I think they're highly effective. You know, I I don't think there's an argument there that Adderall really makes you work and actually makes you forget to eat and do a whole bunch of other things in the process. But 
you know, I think uh, there's got to be other ways and maybe it can be, you know, maybe one day Adderall and microdosing sort of are used in combination on off days. Like there's all sorts of things to be looking at. Right now, we just want to understand does LSD microdosing increase in attention span in a phase to really prove that achieving that flow state actually is also achieving focus. And so a lot of people talk about flow states and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but the FDA doesn't really give a shit. You know, we need to present it in a clinical trial based on rigorous science. So we would just started to elaborate a little bit on the microdosing situation in the world. So maybe you can talk about the study that Kim Kuypers is just doing as we speak, I guess, right? I mean, she, you guys started already. We haven't started the treating patients yet, uh, but I envision that will happen uh, in the next couple of months and we'll have an announcement about that soon. But really, you know, I think what we're trying to hone in on is what is the effective dose to, you know, really increase focus? Like the, is, is the piece of information that we should take away from it. From a scientific standpoint, I think you should bring Kim on, uh, Dr. Kim and Dr. Miri Halpin Warrenly, who are um, really spearheading that. And I think a, a great conversation um, because uh, Dr. Warrenly um, is based in Switzerland. She's heading up collaboration with Basel, but also um, you know, getting all these trials up and running uh, from an operational standpoint. Uh, and I've been doing that for, for many years for multiple uh, biotechs and pharma companies. But I think it really just has a, a passion to, to see that psychedelics become FDA approved medicines um, and someone who comes from the industry and realizes that probably need some change here I mean, to look other directions. Uh, but yeah, so, so to talk a little bit about the study, we haven't published the exact sort of figures on how it's patient size and all that yet. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not so sure I can, can talk about to study design right now. But uh, what I can say is that there will be two sites. Um, one will be at University Hospital Basel, will be recruiting patients there. And the other site will be at Maastricht University uh, with Dr. Kim. And so people that are interested, you know, will be likely recruiting for those, those trials, that, that particular trial very soon. Oh, wow. Where can you apply actually? It's a really good, you know, I was just, we should probably put that on our website because I get that asked like <laughs> 10 times a day. So I'm going to call my IT uh, manager and CTO very quickly and say, look, you know what? We should, all the trials that we are recruiting for, we should be on our website. So I'll be doing that um, as long as my lawyers let me do that. But I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you the information. Please. Yeah. We're happy to, to put it on our side too. Yeah. Since we're in Europe also, I mean, so. But I mean, um, I just remembered that she she had a very interesting talk uh, last year at last year's Horizons conference, Kim Kuiper. So maybe we I check I check if it's online and we will put it in the show notes uh, because I, I was there. I saw her talking and uh, yeah. she's a very interesting scientist. And I mean, I also feel oh, yeah. like she's incredible and she's really become the leading authority on microdosing in the world. Right. I mean, she. You know, I think that horizon, uh, you should definitely put that up because it's a, it's a yeah. great talk. And look, if there's one person who's going to figure out whether microdosing works or not, it's going to be Dr. Kim. Dr. Kim. Okay, we trust in Dr. Kim. I do. And, <laughs> but if you think microdosing through, so at one point it means this will replace any kind of medication, right? That would be the long-term aim, right? 
it's still medication, right? Like yeah. if you have ADHD, you have a medical diagnosed DSM-5, you know, issue. So I don't think that it removes medication from society. No, that's not the objective. The objective mm-hmm. is to find a more effective and, you know, treatment or that uh, is not stimulant-based, really. Mm-hmm. Taking Adderall works, but it's also crash at the end of the day is not so great. There's like a whole bunch of reasons why stimulants are not great, but they work, you know, so does gasoline. Uh, but, right. you know, can we make electric cars? Probably, and we should. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, just sort of improving on things that already work, right? Like let's find alternatives as, as well. And I don't think anyone like is going to disagree with that. You should improve medicines. No, but I mean, it's like, it seems that psychedelics anyway are already the equivalent to the electric car a little bit. Well, I mean, we like, had we not discovered oil, <laughs> yeah. would we have car infrastructure um, and some great German cars, by the way? You know, a lot of my favorite cars are German, but... Uh, Which one? <laughs> well, I, well mm, actually, I don't know. <laughs> <Thanks a long laughs> I'm not time. going there. That, that can really be very divisive in, in Germany, depending okay. on whether you're going to... You know, what car company are you going to go with? That's about as, as dangerous as U.S. politics. So I think I'll stay away from Well, that. I mean, we all, of course, we're all looking into our first Tesla since they opened the... the Look, car, I, like the, I love Tesla. I think it's a, I think it's a great car. Uh, I just wish that somebody would have, like, sort of figured out how to have a more comfortable seat yeah. as a sort of lazy <laughs> American. I feel like we, we should have done that a little better. German cars okay. are very comfortable to sit in. And so that's I think true. the Germans are going to make a great electric car that's going to rival Tesla at some point. So we'll, we'll okay, see. Wow. Always the Germans. There, there are also a lot of Germans in psychedelics, though, I feel. But you talked about this idea of creating antibiotics for addiction or against addiction. Maybe you just can talk a little bit about that idea, how, what that would actually mean in the long run. Well... If you ever struggled with addiction, which I have, so I'll, I'll sort of go through getting off of a, you know, a substance like cocaine or, or alcohol is not difficult. Like it, a lot of, you, know, you can withdraw, like it, you, know, you can get sober up and a lot of functioning drug addicts and alcoholics have to do that to show up to work. I think the issue that it's staying sober, it's staying off a drug and still something I struggle with on a daily basis, right? Is the, the Q and what we call Q induced relapse. Yeah. Just seeing a rolled up dollar bill or being at a party, you know, where, where people are, are using cocaine, for example, for me is like, it's tough to watch because like when you're a drug addict, you know, why their people are headed off to the bathroom and like what they're doing and you know, why they're sniffling their nose. Those are all cues like, oh, bring me back to the pleasure center of my brain. Like, oh, I could just go into that bathroom right now. Or the clink of a wine glass at a bar um, when you're sitting next to your friends. Like those are triggers. And to me, that's the hardest part of addiction is having to just completely remain sober and go on with your normal life. Because the odds are your friends are still gonna drink wine. They're still gonna do drugs. And, um, you know, you can say, well, oh, I'm going to just start a whole new life and just press the delete button. Well, most people don't do that. That's not happening. So let's just accept the fact that Q-induced relapse is the hardest part of addiction. We should figure out a way to solve it. And I think that's what 18MC is going to ultimately have the potential to do. That is what we're, we, we want to create a scenario where you can withdraw, you know, 
get back to a normal life. And maybe, just maybe, you could have a glass of wine towards the end. But I mean, what you just said is interesting because like that's also what something that Gabor Mate is elaborating on is that a lot of people could just drink a bottle of wine and then the next time they drink wine is like two years later because they don't have an underlying trauma that is basically related to their self-medication. And I envy those people. I envy the, the, the person that can, can go on you know, and have a great time and, and go to a party and yeah. never want to drink a bottle of wine again for two years. That would be amazing. It's not me. I don't think it's most of the population because I think there is an underlying trauma for, for a lot of us. Exactly. Yeah, but, and, and that's that's something I feel it's just as we speak is developing as a in, in research. And that what I find very interesting also in, in terms of the new psychedelic science is that for some people, even if it's a very small thing in their life, that is not like the death of a, a parent or a rape or any kind of going to a war like all the veterans are talking about that kind of thing. So sometimes it can be a very so-called very small incident. Just turn CNN on and you can have trauma these days. Yeah. Well, like or COVID. I mean, yeah. even if you're safe and if you have money and everything, even if you're in a secure surrounding, some people develop a very specific uh, way of being super anxious. And, and by the way, like, you know, to back that up with some data, in the beginning of COVID, I believe anxiety prescriptions were up by about a third. Yeah. And most of the 75% of those increases uh, a prescription were from new users. Oh, right? okay. So new patients, Britannix and, and other benzodiazepines. So that's crazy. And we've been talking a lot about addiction and the opioid crisis. Well, the Xanax crisis is coming up. This is a highly addictive substance. I've had lost friends to it, lots of issues with that substance and or with, with benzos in general, not just Xanax. But mm -hmm. we sort of like, I don't know, do you, you, you must get it a little bit in, in Germany as well, although you guys don't do as much, prescribe as many prescription drugs. Mm, as, I'm not uh, so sure anymore about that, actually. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I, I thought there was hope on the other side of the pond. <laughs> no. Uh, but the Xanax haze is a real thing. You know, when you talk to somebody and they're in, the, and they're in that Xanax haze and you're like, whoa, okay. Well, I mean, it's like the Xanax haze is introduced to to Europeans by Brad Easton Ellis in a Xantini, which is like a martini with Xanax in it. So it's in, oh, in really? yeah, it's in, it's in, I think it's in the Glamorama novel when the main character drinks it. I don't think it's American Psycho. I think it's Glamorama. And then also I heard about it when people from mostly from LA would say, oh, I just take Xanax when I go on a flight. It's like, what do you mean you just take Xanax for a flight? Yeah, I did that once too. And um, it was, it was kind of crazy actually. It was like one of the first times I took Xanax and I didn't really know how it was. And I took one and it didn't really set in. And I thought, oh, maybe I should take another two. And so I ended up taking like four Xanaxes on an airplane. And, you know, obviously drinking, you know, doing everything that, yeah. a, you know, yeah. a drug addict and alcoholic would do. And like at the end of the flight, I remember, God. I think it was on Lufthansa. Um, oh. Oh. <laughs> this this German store is just looking at me like, and I had just, you know, I had 
like it re Xanax really just suppresses you, right? And so, and I snore, and I think I just lit that airplane up. <laughs> and um, you know, that's but but by the way, you can go into a Xanax haze really easily, where you're just like going through that stuff, mm -hmm. and then you wake up like three weeks later, and you're like, whoa, I've just been on a bender for three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. That's not medicine to me. No. That doesn't seem like it's helped. And, and, and there are people that have been on Xanax for like 15 years. Well, I mean, it is like the, the most famous self-medication probably. I mean, it's in Hollywood movies. Everybody heard the name at one point. And so all this kind of also glamorization of pills is also kind of ending as we speak because people now realize what it does to you. I mean, OxyContin, all these kind of... I had a little car accident in L.A., I went into Cedar sinai and they were like, oh, you want to have oxys or no? Like two minutes later, you want to have oxys? Like, no, I, I had to say no for five times because I didn't want to take it. Look, it's like I got hit by a car when I was like 17. I was in the hospital. They put, mm -hmm. they put you on, me on a morphine drip. I mean, it was like oh. it was like playing Mario Kart for me. Mm -hmm. you know, just like boom, 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 boom. And that was like my first bout with real addiction was coming out of that surgery. Wow. Because I was like 17, my dad came to my dorm room uh, at school and was like, you know, I was totally out of it. I was on, a, um, yeah, I was on oxycodone at the time. And, you know, I was just running through the, that pill bottle. And he took that bottle and he threw it out in the trash and I nearly punched him. And I think that demonstrates how powerful of an illness addiction really is, mm -hmm. that you're willing to go and punch your father not not very rational mm -hmm. uh while you're also on crutches and you know can barely walk even less rational but we need to deal with not only the underlying cause of addiction but we also need to i think as a country and as a global community evaluate that maybe the medicines that have been approved aren't really great medicines <laughs> exactly for a lot of the things that they're being prescribed for and just because something has a stigma from the 1960s shouldn't be the reason that it doesn't get a proper evaluation and an honest look. Um, yeah. And by the way, I think the regulators are like the most supportive in this whole, in this whole space. Okay. Like, I think the FDA are like, get it. And they're like, look, these are issues, problems in society. Just bring us the data and prove it to us mm -hmm. that, that these things work. And that's exactly what you want from a regulator, a data-driven approach. Yeah. Remove the politics. And like a non-cultural kind of reference, just does it work or it doesn't yeah i mean I, like people always like well, what about timothy leary and yes what about timothy leary um <laughs> he's gone he's, he's gone 40 percent of americans have a mental health issue mm. do we care about what was in the history books we can learn a lot from it mm -hmm. but we should also be in the present there's a lot of fucked up situations that we need to solve yeah that's true but i mean one word in terms of supporters and i just want to mention this again because i find it always interesting if one very kind of famous person like one of your investors kevin o'leary speaks out on psychedelics also in a very new way just saying that look, we need these kind of uh, things to work because otherwise you could even say the economy will collapse because everybody will have a big fat mental health problem. So, I mean, you, even if you go on YouTube and, and Google Kevin O'Leary psychedelics, his famous mm. <laughs> interview with, with you is coming on. So how do you see that in the meantime, how this, let's say, uh, supports the whole destigmatization? Everyone in mainstream America knows who he is. Yeah. I mean, when I go to 
dinner with him we couldn't get through dinner without like 10 people coming up and asking for a selfie or something mm -hmm. trust me they weren't there for the psychedelics they were there for kevin and mr wonderful of course but, but still i think it's super powerful that we were able to get someone like him on board mm -hmm. because stigma is the biggest threat to this space mm -hmm. and anybody that's going to argue otherwise that it's the regulators it's the politicians it's, no it's none of that mm -hmm. it's the stigma that has been ingrained into our heads that psychedelics are bad and you should stay away from them okay that is the biggest problem and if we as a company and as an industry want to help people the most effective thing that we can do right now is not only do clinical trials to actually get them approved as medicine but it is to let people know that these are not necessarily bad substances you've been told that but it's not necessarily based on real data and facts, mm -hmm. based on headlines from the 1960s. I think that like even Kevin had a stigma when I first approached him. It was like, absolutely not. I'm not touching this. This is, this is bad. And it wasn't really until like his team sort of like weighed in and was like, no, this is like a huge opportunity. This is going to be a trend and you need to get involved. And so he called me back a few days later and ultimately wanted to invest and did invest. But I thought he was just going to invest. I didn't think he was actually going to be out there helping us tell our story. Mm -hmm. But what I think he realized was a lot of the people that follow him, a lot of the people that watch Shark Tank in America, all are dealing with mental health and addiction issues. Mm -hmm. They can probably use our medicine far more than anything that's being pitched on Shark Tank. <laughs> And everyone can be, you know, every family could probably be a customer of MindMed or the psychedelic medicine industry mm. because 40% of people have some form of a mental health or addiction issue. So the total addressable market here, probably the biggest I've seen as an entrepreneur in terms of the breadth of folks that we can address. I think that is what interests him as a businessman, but he also realized that the current solutions aren't working and that's not good for society either. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really happy that, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, well, why are you getting Kevin O'Leary involved? Like, I remember being at a psychedelics conference and getting heckled, like, tell Mr. Wonderful to stop tweeting about our medicine. Oh, wow. First of all, they're not your medicines. <laughs> they are everybody's to work on. And if Kevin O'Leary wants to help us destigmatize the space, then the more power to him, please take a seat. Yeah, I think that's honestly, I think that's the right attitude because they're Every day there's one new example with this. For example, there's this movie coming out in America with about Lamar Odom, you know, where he talks about yeah. his ketamine and ibogaine treatments. And I mean, it's exactly when I lived there when, when he OD'd in a way that people thought he would die. So there's almost like every week there's somebody more and more famous coming out saying like, okay, look, I would be dead without psilocybin. I would have killed myself without LSD. So, I mean, I think we're on the way and we're very <laughs> happy that we finally made it to do this interview. So thank you for being on the show again. Thank you. I am very excited what's happening with MindMed in the next couple of months or maybe days in, in MindMed's beat. Well, I think we should get Dr. Uh, Wernley on and get together. I think it would be great. Yeah, that would be great. Let's do that. Yeah. All the best in Miami. I hope you can entertain yourself in the <laughs> months to come. I just have given up on being a social creature for the time being. Yeah. Um, and I'm just working because there's no better time to work. There's nothing to do. It's true. Everybody's very effective now. 
these yeah, days. It's like it's part of the reason that I think Scandinavians and Europeans are so creative mm-hmm. is because the winters suck and uh, <laughs> you have to stay inside and there's really nothing to do. So and now now this winter especially you have to stay inside. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always cool to have a conversation that's free flowing and across the pond yeah and thank you that you're so open with these topics i really appreciate this and i think that's what a lot of people are into that people are just really talking about themselves also how they are involved in this whole thing hawaii and um, yeah thank you so much again and i hope we have the two ladies on the show very soon you will all right see you soon <laughs> talk to you see soon ya. thank you so much again 